It was probably when I was, I think in middle school, maybe in high school, when I was first introduced to the film, epic film, uh, The Princess Bride. And so many of you have probably seen that before and, uh, and, and maybe enjoy it, maybe a family favorite. Um, I'm still trying to convince my wife of that movie's excellence. Um, perfectly one day she'll believe me. And, uh, but it, The Princess Bride is an amazing film, and it, it's, it's full of everything. The Princess Bride has literally everything you could look for uh, in a movie. There's, there's a, a giant who rhymes, there's uh, pirates, there are sword fights, there are feats of strength, there is a, a maniacal uh, a genius who is absolutely insane. There is, of course, a, a princess who is betrothed to a wicked six-fingered man. Uh, any man with six fingers on his right hand must be wicked. And so uh, there, there are uh, death-defying uh, moments. There are people who are raised from being mostly dead. Not all the way dead, but mostly dead. Uh, there, there's a storming of a castle. And, and I, I feel like that doesn't even explain half of the movie. And so I was, I was thinking as I was reading through Acts and preparing for this, like Acts is a book of the Bible where there is just constant action all in Acts. The, the, the action never stops. There's a little bit of everything in the book of Acts, and it's nearly impossible to sum up all of Acts in, in a, you know, a, a 45 or, or, or 50 minute sermon, it feels like. And so as I was reading through the, through the book of Acts and, and preparing for tonight, um, I felt like, goodness gracious, there's, there's just not enough time to cover everything that's in it. Uh, I hope that you spent some time this week reading through the books of the book of Acts in preparation for tonight. And so you'll know some of the stories that we won't have time to hit on. Um, but just to pique your interest in case it's been a while since you've read Acts, um, there's a lot of exciting things that happen there. And, and there's some stories that we won't have time to cover tonight, but um, stories like uh, the seven sons of Siva who are uh, uh, sort of prophets and, and Jewish exorcists that are trying to exorcise these demons in the city. And they're trying to do it in Jesus' name. And the demons uh, speak through the men that they are possessing and say uh, to these uh, uh, supposed prophets and, and, and exorcists, they say, Jesus, we know, Paul, we've heard of, but we have no idea who you are. And so they ravage, they beat up these, uh, these prophets of the Lord. And even in these, or not prophets of the Lord, these, the, even in these prophets or, or or supposed professional exorcists being beat up, even in them being beat up, the name of the Lord goes all throughout that city and people get saved. It's just crazy stuff like that happens all the time. Paul literally preaches a guy to death. Uh, he preaches so long that a man named Eutychus falls out of a window to his death. Paul goes downstairs, raises Eutychus from the dead. They go back upstairs and Paul keeps on preaching. Uh, so Acts, the book of Acts is just filled with stuff. Peter is arrested at one point for preaching the gospel and then miraculously released in the middle of the night. And so he goes to the house of the people that he knows where they're staying and he knocks on the door and he's like, hey, let me in, let me in. It's Peter, let me in. And the slave girl in the house goes over and she hears the knocking and she hears Peter's voice on the other side. And in her excitement, she never opens the door, but she runs back to go tell everybody that Peter's waiting outside. And they're all, what do you do? Let him in, let him in. So Acts is just full of um, all sorts of things happening all of the time. And it's, it is nigh unto impossible to, to cover all of the things that happen in the book of Acts in a context like this. So what I want to do tonight is, is essentially trace three uh, themes that, that uh, find their way all throughout the book of Acts. And then in your free time, 
you, you can read the rest of Acts and you can see these things uh, fleshing themselves out in many um, uh, specific ways. And the book of Acts is 28 chapters long. Uh, it will take you about two, two and a half hours to read if you're doing it all in one sitting. And that's a, a good use of two to two and a half hours. There are a lot of things that we'll do for two hours. I will sit and watch Prison Break on Netflix for two and a half hours. Um, without blinking an eye. Uh, we'll go to football games or watch basketball games on TV for two or two and a half hours. Uh, and I would dare say the action, the things that are happening, the way that God is working in the book of Acts is far more entertaining than prison break or a football game or a baseball game or whatever. So spend the time to read the book of Acts to see uh, in greater detail some of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight. As we look at the particulars about the book, we know, first of all, that the author of this book is the doctor and missionary companion of Paul named Luke. Uh, Many early uh, second century accounts attribute the book to Luke, uh, to his authorship. It is the second installment of Luke's sort of history of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, The first installment, first volume, is his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and the second of his installments is the, the book of Acts. Uh, likely writing between 62 and 64 A.D., around the same time that he wrote uh, his, his gospel, that compendium. He uh, addresses this, same, this volume also to his uh, friend Theophilus, whom he wrote his gospel to, possibly a, 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 a well-to-do Greek believer in Jesus, or, or at least a Greek God-fearer uh, that Luke was writing to, to explain all that Jesus had done and what the disciples had done uh, after Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, and had ascended to the Father. If I were going to summarize Acts in a few sentences, I would do it this way. Uh, Certainly, we just mentioned it's the second of Luke's two-volume history of Jesus and the church. Now, where in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke traces uh, what he says in Acts 1, 1 and 2, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. Here in this book, in Acts, Luke is not tracing the work of Jesus specifically, but that of his apostles, his disciples, who were empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives. He's chronicling the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in the first, you know, 30 years or so of its existence. Acts follows the spread of the gospel from the 11 remaining disciples in Jerusalem to the Gentiles and then to Rome and from Rome to the known world through Paul. Uh, We see the gospel moving to people of all nations throughout Acts. In fact, that's the main purpose of, uh, uh, of this book is to show us that the gospel is going to all nations. Now, the three major themes that I think uh, pervade the book of Acts, there are certainly several others, but three that are, uh, that are, that, that are undeniable, and these are the ones that we're going to use to kind of uh, chart our study tonight. First is this, the mission of Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ. The mission of Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Second major theme, the gospel must be preached And hearers of the gospel must repent and believe for salvation. That's a major theme of Acts. The gospel must be preached and hearers must must respond with repentance and belief for salvation. Third and finally, and and this um, not any more important than the other two, but just something worth noting and remembering. The gospel is unstoppable. In the book of Acts, we learn that the gospel of Jesus is unstoppable. As we think about Acts in the scope of redemption history, of what God is doing in, in human history from creation all the way up until 
Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, we see that Acts kind of covers uh, the, the last two of these four major gospel movements, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It, it, is, it is telling us about the, the message of redemption in Jesus and pointing us to the consummation of Christ's kingdom, pointing us to the day when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. So if you have your uh, crayon or pen, whatever you're taking notes with, uh, circle those two or draw a box, whatever kind of shape you like, around those last two sort of gospel movements, redemption and consummation. Uh, so that when you think about Acts, you'll be thinking about uh, those parts of, of God's work in redemptive history. Now, as you read Acts on your own time this week, or have already read Acts and are planning to go back and read it again, um, it it helps to know what the genre of the book is. What kind of literature is it that we're reading? Uh, We know that to read poetry is different than reading a a fiction novel or a a biography. We we have to put on different sorts of lenses uh, that, that we read different kinds of literature through. So, the, the genre of Acts is not poetry, it's, it's not gospel, it's not law, it's historical narrative. The gospel of Acts is historical narrative. As such, many portions uh, of the narrative in Acts, the history that it's telling, are descriptive of one-time events in the church and not necessarily prescriptive for the church today. So there are some, a lot of things that happen in the book of Acts that are one-time occurrences that, that exist to tell us about God's glory, about His power, about the working of the Holy Spirit, but that are not necessarily prescriptive for the church today. And some of these things that happen in Acts are not things that are supposed to happen every Sunday uh, in church. Now, certainly, there are in the book of Acts examples to follow. Uh, in, in the kind of commitment that the disciples and others have, in the kind of faith and repentance that people have in Jesus There is a command to follow, at least one primary command. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you have your Bibles open already, hopefully to the book of Acts, uh, look right there. It's at the beginning. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says this to his disciples before he sends to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this uh, statement by Jesus is as much a command as it is a promise and a prediction of what will happen. Jesus here is using the future tense. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Uh, In that way, he is saying what will happen. He's making a prediction of what what the disciples will do. But, But he's also sort of making a promise about what is going to take place. You will do this. I promise you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and I promise you, you will be my witnesses. And he's also, in a sense, giving a command. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Go, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So there's a command to follow in Acts. But what we read in the book of Acts is not always directly applicable to, uh, to the church today or replicable. So the, there is certainly application on every page for the church, but it's not always one-to-one application. So we ought not to expect the Holy Spirit to fall on all of us like tongues in tongues of fire every single Sunday as we gather together. One-time occurrence of the coming of the Holy Spirit in a way of, uh, of divine power... Um, to, to illustrate that God is doing something new. He's, uh, the Holy Spirit is coming upon the disciples in a way that the Holy Spirit has never descended upon people ever again. Now, certainly we believe for all, all those who are trusting in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us and does gift us with various spiritual gifts. But we don't expect the Holy Spirit to fall like fire, literally like in tongues of fire on us every single Sunday. So s- certain events that are descriptive and not prescriptive to happen 
uh, every week in church. So, for instance, in reading Acts chapter 2, we should not expect it to be normative in the life of the church for the Holy Spirit to uh, descend on us in fire each and every week and that we all start preaching in foreign languages that we've never heard before, okay? Uh, So when reading Acts then... And seeing some of these really fantastic and and miraculous things going on, it helps to ask a few different questions as we work through. So here are four that I've given us. First, what aspect of Christ's character or the gospel is this passage about? What what part of Christ's power or or the Holy Spirit's work in the life of people, uh, uh, of followers of Jesus, what is that telling me about how the Holy Spirit works, about what Jesus wants us to do? Secondly, how do I see God's redemptive plan through the ages at work here? We're going to look at several sermons that are preached throughout the course of the book of Acts. And in there, uh, in the majority of those sermons, those that are preaching, whether it's Peter or Stephen or Paul, uh, all of them are referring to what God has done in history to redeem a people for himself, uh, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way leading up to Christ and its perfect fulfillment. So how do we see God's redemptive plan through the ages at work in Acts? Third, do well to ask the question, Uh, Knowing that Christ is sending his disciples to be his witnesses in all the world, we do well to ask this question reflectively, internally. To whom is God sending me or calling me to proclaim the gospel? We know that that's a command. We know that it's a promise that all disciples of Jesus will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and even to, uh, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So who's God calling me to proclaim the gospel to? And then fourth and finally... Uh, How am I seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit as I seek to share the gospel? Jesus says that his disciples will be his witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are we looking for, how are we looking to the Holy Spirit to empower us to share the gospel on a regular basis? Ask yourselves these questions as you walk through the book of Acts, read through the book of Acts on your own. And uh, and I trust that it will enrich your study and help you to begin to apply what's going on in the book of Acts to your own life. Now, if I were going to outline Acts, that would take a long time, so I'll just nutshell it for you. There are essentially two movements in the book of Acts. First, there is, from chapters 1 through 12, the witness of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 through 28, there's a shift, and the witness of Jesus moves from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel gets to Rome, and, uh, and, and Paul with intention to get to Spain. And so th- that's really kind of how the whole book is broken down. And there's several events that take place along the way, uh, but essentially two movements. The witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then the second half of Acts, the witness to the ends of the earth. Now let's look at those three main themes uh, in the book of Acts. I hope you have your Bibles open. We'll be flipping around quite a bit. And so I hope to hear lots of page rustling. And um, if you get there in time, great. If not, that's okay too. So let's look at the first of these themes. That the mission of Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The mission of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. That term, Holy Spirit, the, the name for the third person of the Trinity, is, is used 41 times in the course of Acts, which is far more than any other book of the New Testament, uh, even of any other book in the rest of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is active in Acts, not passive. It's not this sort of nebulous force or energy that the disciples tap into to do their work. It's not like the Star Wars force. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the triune God, co-equal and co-eternal in majesty and glory with God the Father and God the Son. He is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts of believers, empowering them to do the work that Jesus is commissioning them to do. And so let's look again at Acts chapter 1, 
uh, verses 1 through 8, and just see already at the beginning of the book of Acts the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke writes this, In the first book, book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. There in these first verses, the Holy Spirit is immediately associated with the commands that Jesus gives to his disciples. The Holy Spirit will fill the disciples, and in filling them, will give them power to be witnesses of Jesus. The nature of the Holy Spirit is personal and divine. The Father and the Son both send him. We know this from the way that Luke refers to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 16, verse 7. He calls the Spirit there the Spirit of Jesus, right? So directly tying the Holy Spirit to the Son, right, to, to Christ The Holy Spirit is one with the Father. He's one with the Son. He is the guarantor, the empowerer of the success of the gospel. And so knowing that, any attempt that we have to grow God's kingdom apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, any attempt that we have to try to save people or see people be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives will be futile. It'll be pointless. It will be devoid of power and devoid of Christ. So we as believers in Jesus must be following the leading of the Holy Spirit and praying that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives of those that we're going to share the gospel with. That's how important the Holy Spirit is. But let's look at a few things that the Holy Spirit does. First, the Holy Spirit fills all believers. The Holy Spirit fills all believers. We already saw it in Acts here 1 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But then also look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4. There, a little bit later, uh, the disciples are in an upper room, they're spending time uh, praying and fasting. Now, waiting for the promise that Jesus said would come, the Holy Spirit. And then look at um, uh, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. But not just Acts chapter 2, verse 4, do we see the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples, but we see Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, at the end of his first, the the first Christian sermon of history, uh, see him showing that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who believe. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. At the end of his sermon, the people ask, the people who hear him preach say, uh, say to Peter and the disciples, brothers, what must we do? Because they're convicted by the message of the gospel. And Peter said to them in Acts 2.38, Repent, that means turn from your sin. Stop your sinning and turn to God and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who is the Holy Spirit for? 
everyone that God calls to be saved by faith in Jesus. So know this today. If you have trusted Jesus, you have placed all of your confidence for salvation and forgiveness of sins in Christ, in his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, you have the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling within you bodily even now, empowering you to gospel mission, guaranteeing your salvation. Now, here in this first sermon, Peter is talking to Jews. He's in Jerusalem. It's largely Jews of Jerusalem and of the the, the Hellenized world. That is the world that had been conquered by Greece and whatever. But there are Hellenistic Jews, Greek Jews, who are living in other places that have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for Passover and for Pentecost. So he's preaching primarily to Jews here. But the Holy Spirit is not just for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 45. Which, by the way, if you're a Gentile here tonight, raise your hand. If you are not an ethnic Jew, right, you can raise your hand. Okay, that's, I think, all of us in this room. So that's the good news. The Holy Spirit is for you, not just for Jews. Acts chapter 10, verse 45. Peter gets a, uh, receives a vision from the Lord in Acts chapter 10, uh, calling him to uh, go uh, or, or showing him that nothing that God has declared clean is now, uh, nothing that God has declared clean is unclean any longer. Even if it was previously unclean under the Levitical law, God is saying, I'm removing that, that dividing wall in Christ, in my son. And shortly after that, Peter receives word from a guy named Cornelius, a Gentile God-fearer who wants to hear the gospel from Peter. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, verse 45, um, verses 44 and 45, we read this. While Peter was still saying these things, that is, while he was wrapping up his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fills all believers regardless of our ethnic background, regardless of our social status, regardless of what we do or don't have or what we do or do not look like, whether you're a man or a woman or an adult or a child. If you are trusting fully in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Have confidence in that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit not only fills all believers, but the Holy Spirit empowers believers for the preaching of the gospel. Remember Acts 1.8, you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. At Pentecost, we saw there in Acts chapter 2, verses 4 and following, we find that the Holy Spirit fills the disciples and immediately they begin speaking in other languages. Uh, but uh, with the language, in the languages that they're speaking in, what they're, what they're preaching, what they're proclaiming is the gospel. Look at uh, chapter 2 of Acts, verses 6 and following. At this sound, that is the, the, the great sound of the, of the rushing wind that came through where the disciples were staying. At this sound, a multitude came together. And they were all bewildered because each one that is speaking uh, of, the, of the disciples was, uh, uh, each one was hearing them speak from the disciples in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them, that is, we hear the disciples telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
So there, as the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples, the first gift that they received is this ability to speak in intelligible languages that they previously did not know. Now, the disciples would have uh, primarily known uh, Aramaic and maybe a little bit of, uh, of Greek. But here, in this instance, they're, they're speaking in dialects from all over the Roman Empire. And Jews that had traveled from all over the Roman Empire are hearing the disciples proclaim the gospel and the mighty works of God in their native language, in their native dialects. But then, just after this, Peter pauses and, and everyone gathers together. And he gives his first Christian sermon there at Pentecost. Not in a foreign language, but in a language that everyone could understand. He preaches, m- most uh, uh, scholars would agree, that he preaches at this point in Aramaic. In a language he already knew. In a language that most other people already knew as well. He, he preaches, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in a language that's understandable by the vast majority of those that are gathered in Jerusalem there. But he doesn't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. He does this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then moving on, in Acts chapter 4, verse 8... Peter is arrested for preaching Christ and preaching the gospel. And there in Acts chapter 4, he gives, uh, he gives his second sort of Christian sermon. And there we read again in Acts chapter 4, verse 7 and following. Uh, when they had sat them, that, that this is the Jewish ruling council. When they had sat the disciples in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, chapter 4, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this been healed? Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So uh, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit again in Acts chapter 4, as he's arrested, is preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. Same thing in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen and Paul in Acts chapter 13 verse 9. Preaching, in the, uh, preaching with boldness the gospel of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Explicitly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Declaring the gospel, rebuking evildoers. Um, all of this done by the power that the Holy Spirit gives to them. So church then, we should, in seeing the way that the Holy Spirit emboldens people, empowers people in the book of Acts... We should, you should be encouraged to know that all of the power that you need to faithfully work out the great commission of Christ is already in you by the Holy Spirit. Everything you need to accomplish whatever part of the great commission that God has for you to accomplish in your life, you have all the power that you need to do it. You don't need a seminary education. You don't need to take 47 different evangelism classes. You don't have to know all the different evangelism tools. You don't have to be an excellent discipler. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. The same Spirit that called you to place faith in Christ is empowering you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the world. So trust the Holy Spirit. You don't need a better gimmick. You don't need a flashy vocabulary. You don't have to be as smart as Paul. I don't know if anybody is as smart as the Apostle Paul. You don't need anything other than, anything greater than, the very Spirit of Jesus in you, empowering you to share the gospel. So, what's holding us back? I don't know. I don't have a good answer. (laughs) Preaching to myself here. Stephen, what's holding you back from sharing the gospel? I don't know, Stephen, you convinced me. I better go do it this week. So the Holy Spirit fills all believers and empowers all believers for the preaching of the gospel. Then third, the Holy Spirit sends. The Holy Spirit sends people in power with the gospel. We see it in Acts chapter 29 with Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8 verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 19. This is, uh, uh, again, Paul or, or Peter's uh, vision to, the, uh, to, to go to Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, 19 is somewhere in my Bible. There it is. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So he sends Peter to go with the messengers of Cornelius back to Cornelius' house. And then in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and following, I think one of the coolest portions of Acts is this, that we see the Holy Spirit sending Paul and Barnabas on mission with the gospel for the first time, like out away from Jerusalem. Acts chapter uh, 2, we'll start in verse 1. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Barnabas Simeon, who is called Niger, meaning he is from the region of, uh, of Niger. He was a black man. Lucius of Cyrene, which is also a, an area in Africa. So Lucius, also a black man. Menean, a member of the court of, of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then verse 4, so being, out by the Holy, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now this is a really interesting thing that's happening in Acts chapter 13. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. How did the Holy Spirit say that? I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of that room when that happened. Like, did the Holy Spirit audibly speak to all of the people there? Uh, what, what happened? Well, I, I think what happened was we see these people who are, they're worshiping the Lord, they're fasting, they're spending time in prayer, seeking the Lord's direction. And then together, corporately, as the, as the church, they all together receive this simultaneous impression from the Holy Spirit saying, Paul and Barnabas, I've chosen them for this work. Set them apart and send them out. It's amazing. It's amazing. Consider the things that the Holy Spirit can say, can lead us to do as a church in unison when we spend time together worshiping, fasting, praying, intentionally seeking the will of the Lord. Not just coming because we're checking off a box or because we, you know, we know that the, you know, the guest preacher is going to be really good that day so we show up for, for worship. But showing up for worship expectant, right? Being prayed up before we go. Being here unite, as we worship together, united in spirit, wanting to know where God is leading. Imagine the things that God could tell us and, and commission us to do as we do that unified in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sends, but also the Holy Spirit prevents people. And he, he sends, but he also prevents. And I didn't put prevents in your, in your uh, guide there, but you can maybe write that as well. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and in Acts chapter 21, verse 4, we see the Holy Spirit not sending Paul. The Holy Spirit prevents Paul from going to Asia where he wanted to go uh, on his missionary journey. That they might go instead to other areas uh, as well. Uh, that's in Acts chapter 16. And then in Acts chapter 21, the Holy Spirit prevents Paul from going to Jerusalem because of danger that's awaiting him there. So the Holy Spirit does send people, but the Holy Spirit also um, uh, stops people from going certain places. My question for you is this, do you, do you desire, maybe it has been your desire, to go far and, and abroad with the gospel? Is it your heart's desire to, to go to strange and exotic places where people are not yet reached uh, for Christ with the gospel? If so, that's a noble thing to desire. It's a good thing to want to go to places and to people who have not heard the name of Jesus. But let me caution you to do it only in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Don't try to go if the Holy Spirit is saying no. 
Yes, God intends to make disciples of every nation through the church, through your witness to Christ. But even Paul was restricted by the Spirit from going to certain places. Because it was not part of God's will for Paul to go, not part of God's will for Paul to go to those places. And so as we pray for God to send us on mission and we pray for unity, we pray for direction, we must also pray that we would have the clear guidance and wisdom that comes only from the Holy Spirit to direct our steps, to direct our planning, to direct our plane flights and our back road bus rides and even across the street and next door as we go with the gospel. We must spread the gospel broadly. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But we also do it only in the power of the Holy Spirit and only in the guidance and leadership and sending of the Holy Spirit. So don't go on mission without the Holy Spirit. Only go on mission with the Holy Spirit and go wherever he sends you. Second major theme in the book of Acts is this, that the gospel must be preached. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, must be proclaimed verbally. And hearers of this message must respond in repentance of sin and belief in Jesus for salvation. There is no other way to be saved but by repentance and belief in Jesus. Luke's gospel, uh, uh, the gospel of Luke, ends with Jesus giving these instructions to his disciple. This is in Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. It says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And certainly we should see something familiar in that final commission of Jesus in Luke's gospel and what Jesus commissions the disciples to do in Acts 1.8. Right? You'll be my witnesses. There's a link there between proclamation of the gospel in both places, proclamation of the gospel, which is forgiveness of sins for the one who repents of their sins and believes on the name of Jesus. Salvation is linked to faith in Christ and repentance in his name. And it's the only link that is there. Salvation is not tied to anything else. There's no other way to to attain it, to receive it. So then, we have in Acts chapter 1, 8, that we are commissioned, we are commanded to be gospel witnesses. That's the heart of Acts 1.8. You will receive power. I'm going to say this a lot because this is the core of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. Now that word witness comes from the Greek word martyreo, which sounds a lot like martyr, doesn't it? That word witness has a, a legal connotation to it. It's not merely that someone is a witness by observing something with their eyes. That's one way to witness, but that's not the way the New Testament means witness. It doesn't mean you should see something with your eyes. It means that you stand to verbally declare what you have observed. As in a court of law, you are giving witness on the witness stand to Christ and what he has done. To be a witness of the gospel is to speak to the facts of the gospel. It is to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel. There is no witness to Christ apart from preaching, apart from verbal declaration, proclamation of what Christ has done. And indeed, this is the very core of the book of Acts. Roughly one-third of Acts is sermon content from various different people uh, all throughout the history of the early church. A third of Acts is just sermons. There are ten recorded sermons in long form in Acts. And there are many more statements and summaries uh, of other sermons that are preached. We're going to look at uh, seven here tonight very briefly. There are three sermons that are preached by Peter, right? The sort of the chief uh, apostle or chief disciple, if you will. The first of his sermons he preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in verses 
14 through 36. Now, in this very first of all the Christian sermons, Peter's witness, his, his proclamation is of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit and pointing to all that Jesus did in the power of God. Let's look at verses 22 through uh, 36 here. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us today. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he, would not, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, observers with our eyes and now declarers with our mouths. And as Peter wraps up his sermon, the crowds are convicted by what he says. Brothers, what shall we do? They respond in verse 38, which we already saw. Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God has called to himself. So in the very first Christian sermon, the very first witness to Christ, or witness of the gospel, what is Peter doing? Preaching Jesus. And then he moves on. In Acts chapter 3, he gives a second sermon in the temple courtyard, a place called Solomon's Portico. In Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. And here in this sermon, Peter refers to Israel's patriarchs. So he goes back in history, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding uh, those that are listening that um, it is the same God of the fathers of Israel that has raised Jesus from the dead. There is no resurrection but by God, and that God is the same one that the Jews that he's preaching to have been worshiping. His call to them is the same as before. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Again, second sermon. It's preaching Christ and calling the people to respond to respond to the uh, the message of Jesus with belief in his name and repentance of their sin. Then his third sermon is to the Gentile Cornelius. So he's preached to Jews, now he's preaching to a Gentile. And this is in Acts chapter 10 verses 34 through 43. In this really fascinating event, God works simultaneously in Cornelius's life and in Peter's life to bring this first sermon to those who are outside the house of Israel, to uh, to Gentiles. So on one day, God sends an angel to Cornelius, telling him to send for a man uh, from Jerusalem named Peter. And then the next day, he gives a vision to Peter, showing Peter that the time was right to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Peter, in meeting the messengers that come from Cornelius, goes to Cornelius. And in his out house, in front of Cornelius and all the people that are gathered there, he essentially says to them, in quite a funny way, what do you want me to do? I've come all this way. Now what? 
Cornelius says in Acts chapter 10, verse 33, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So what does Peter do? He preaches and closes his sermon uh, with the words, to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So whether Peter's preaching to Jews or whether he's preaching to Gentiles, the message is Jesus. And the intended response, the call to respond is to repent of sins and believe in him. Then there's one sermon by Stephen, which is a really long one. And you're thinking, yep, brother, you're preaching it right now. This sermon is in Acts chapter 7. Now, uh, at the end of Stephen's sermon, he's stoned to death. And so I pray that you'll be more gracious this evening. I have, this is an aside, I have two times in my life had to preach Stephen's sermon uh, in its full. And it's only ironic because my name is Stephen and I tend to preach kind of long. And Peter preaches a really long sermon, or Stephen preaches a really long sermon in Acts chapter 7 and he dies for it. I've preached his sermon twice and I haven't died. So I think that's a good thing. Um, but time will tell. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has, is, is being called to attest for what he's doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's being called to account for preaching the gospel. And here, and it's not in a good way either. Here in Acts 7, the sermon is in the presence of those who have arrested him and of the high priest of, uh, uh, of Israel. And Stephen's sermon is a defense from Scripture and from the history of Israel to Jesus as the promised Christ. Stephen goes all the way back to Moses and to Abraham and, and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has been doing and promising amongst the people of Israel since their very beginning. So we do well to see this when you this week go and read Stephen's long sermon, that the history of the people of Israel is the history of the church as well. Their history is our history. Their Christ is our Christ. And so when we make a defense for the faith, we don't do it in a merely Western American Christian sense. We do. We make defenses for the faith on the basis of a long recorded history that includes the people of Israel. As our forebears in the faith. Abraham is our forefather. Isaac and Jacob are our forefathers in the faith. Through whom came the Savior of Israel and of the Gentiles. One Savior for all people, Jesus, from the people of Israel. Israel's history in the Bible is our history too. And so, having said that, let me say this. There is no room for anti-Semitism in the church today. Now... Among the reformers, uh, Martin Luther being one of them, great man, did a lot for the faith, but he was an ardent anti-Semite, did not like Jews. was kind of one of the black marks in his, his history. Church, as much as we may love some of our forebears in the faith, so those that have done much to ensure that, that, we, can, uh, that, we, that we have God's word in our own language to read, uh, like Martin Luther, uh, we do well to honor them and the work that they've done for Christ, but we also recognize where they've fallen short and where they've messed up. And Martin Luther messed up on that. He missed it in being, um, in being an anti-Semite. There's no room for that in the church today. So Peter, Stephen preaches this long sermon about the history of Israel and Jesus coming from Israel. What ultimately gets Stephen killed for his sermon, though, is not his sermon in and of itself, but of his call to those who are hearing to turn from their wickedness and believe in Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 7, verses 51 and following with me. Finishes his sermon, and in Acts 7.51, he says this, 
you stiff-necked people, which is always a good way to uh, address people that uh, you're, you're uh, in conflict with. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So, they're fine with this sermon up until that point. Now, while here in, in Stephen's sermon, there's not a direct call. like a, He doesn't say directly, repent, right, and believe. But there is a challenge to them to no longer be stiff-necked and stubborn. No longer be resistant to the Holy Spirit, but to see the Scriptures clearly and to heed the call of the Holy Spirit and to turn from their wickedness. Stephen, in his sermon about Jesus, focused on Jesus, calls his hearers to believe and to repent. And then we have six sermons by Paul, three of them that we'll uh, look at in, in brief tonight three of which uh, take place during his various missionary journeys. On his first missionary journey, he has a sermon to Jews. On his second missionary journey, Luke records a sermon of Paul to the Gentiles. And on his third, he records one of Paul's sermons to the Christians. So first, in Acts chapter 13, Paul has this uh, uh, sermon to the Jews. And it's much the same as Peter's earlier sermon uh, and, and Stephen's as well, in that he's he is uh, recalling all of the history of Israel, which is a helpful thing to do when you're preaching to Jews. You say, look, look, guys, put all the pieces together. See that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 38, he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through, th- through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who, uh, who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, receive forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. Believe on him. Repent of your sins and receive forgiveness. Then, in Acts 17, he preaches to some Gentiles. And here, he's in the city of Athens. And he's speaking to a group of Athenian idol worshipers. So, they're all worshiping idols, particularly one that doesn't have a name. And so then Paul does not then argue from the scriptures, but instead he argues from creation and the created order. And for them, he names the one true God and creator of the universe. He looks to a temple or a shrine to an unknown God, and he says, let me tell you about the God that you do not know. He's the one who's created everything that you see and know and experience, and he sent his son to die for your sins. And so Paul names the God of the universe and his son, Jesus, who's the judge of all the world. And in light of the coming judgment for the sin that all men by their own consciences know that they have committed, Paul says in verse 30 of Acts 17, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in the risen son of Jesus. What's the focus of his message? It's Jesus and repentance for salvation. Then he gives a third sermon in Acts chapter 20 to Christians. And this final sermon is, is it's an exhortation, it's an encouragement to the Christians who are living in Ephesus where Paul, where Paul spent about two years ministering and how they ought to live in light of the gospel. But even here, Paul couches his ministry and their salvation in how, as he says in Acts 20, verses 20 and 21. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying, witnessing, right, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the focus of each and every one of his sermons? Jesus and the response, the right response to hearing the gospel, 
believing in Jesus, repenting of sins, and you will receive salvation. The importance in all of this, of all the sermons that are preached all throughout Acts, is that the gospel of Jesus must be preached. It must be witnessed to. We must speak of Jesus by Christians. It must be proclaimed by Christians everywhere and in every time. Gospel proclamation is not just for the disciples 2,000 years ago. It is for you and it is for me, for all of us who trust in Jesus. And not just within the walls of this church, but especially outside of it. I don't know if you've noticed, but not a whole lot of lost people are just showing up at church on a regular basis. Church is where believers come to worship together, to be edified. There aren't a lot of lost people here. Where do we got to go if we want to preach to lost people? Outside these walls. Outside these walls. Proclaiming Christ in the world, in our workplaces, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. Because as Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12 of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says there's no other way. There's no other name. You trust in Jesus, only in him, repent of your sins. It's the only way to be saved. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. So, friends, know this tonight. If you're not repenting of your sin, if you've not turned from your sin and are seeking for God to forgive you and make you holy uh, because of who Jesus is and his death and resurrection, you cannot, will not be saved. If you don't repent and don't believe, you can't be saved. Peter said as much. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. Not Danny, not salvation in Stephen's name, not salvation in Peter's name or Paul's name, not salvation in Karen's name or Linda's name, only in Jesus' name. If your family or friends are not turning from their sin and in faith in Jesus receiving forgiveness, they will not be saved. If the Sentinelese people, you don't know who they are, you're going to go home tonight and you're going to Google them. The Sentinelese people who are uncontacted by any other outside civilization living on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean do not repent of their rejection of the one true God and trust in Jesus, they will not be saved. So urgent is the task of proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus precisely because he is the only one who can save. Our neighbors need to hear it. Our family members need to hear it. Co-workers need to know it. They need to know Jesus. They need to hear his name so that they can trust in him. These people who have been living on this island in the Indian Ocean, uncontacted for hundreds of years, need to hear the name of Jesus. Otherwise, they will not be saved. The gospel must be preached. It must be proclaimed clearly. And people must be pointed to trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. Otherwise, they cannot be saved. And that's major theme in the book of Acts. But then third and finally, we see this. And this is so cool. In the book of Acts, in the midst of all the conflict that the disciples uh, uh, face and all of the persecution against the church, we see, and not just in Acts, by the way, but in all of the, just the history of the church, we see this. Nothing can stop the gospel. Satan and sinful people have been trying for millennia to stop the good news of Jesus, and they have failed for millennia. The gospel of Jesus cannot be stopped. So many times in the book of Acts, we see uh, attempts and serious attempts to stop the gospel from moving forward. Disciples are arrested. Preachers of the gospel are beaten and killed. 
Peter being stoned to death in Acts 7. In Acts 12, we have James, the brother of Jesus, becoming a martyr for the faith as well. Murderous mobs plot and scheme against the disciples and against the church. Paul is shipwrecked. Forces of nature cannot stop the gospel. And there's more than this. This is just a a small list of the, the trials that the disciples and the early believers face. But in all of this, the gospel just keeps moving. It just keeps moving forward. People keep hearing of Jesus. They keep responding in faith and repentance. Churches keep growing at astonishing rates. Uh, In the earliest parts of Acts, we see the church growing by three and 5,000 at a time. Paul makes his way ultimately to Rome to appear before Caesar. And the book of Acts stops in Acts chapter 28 before we actually are able to hear Paul's appeal before Caesar. But he's there to contend for the faith of those who follow what is called at that time the way. There are far too many gospel victories in Acts to even try to cover them all here tonight. And so that's why you get to read about them this week. Yet it's not the victories of the gospel in and of themselves that are so, that are so important in Acts. What is important is that it's the spirit of the Christians, the, the Holy Spirit moving, emboldening, empowering the believers in Acts to trust and depend upon God in the midst of trial and persecution and hardship as they proclaim Jesus. After Peter and John's first arrest for the gospel in Acts chapter 4, they're released, um, they're, they're, they're tried, they're questioned, uh, no, no charges are ultimately brought. They, they uh, beat them up a little bit and release them back to their friends. And, uh, and as Peter and John leave, they go to the church in Jerusalem and share with the church what happened to them. And then the church responds this way. At the very first threat to their faith, This is how the church responds. Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 24 and following. Turn there with me if you you can. I'll begin in verse 23. When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that is when the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Lord, please make it easier for us. No, they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Catch this. They, even at this point, they see the opposition to the disciples is not as opposition to Peter and John, but opposition to Jesus. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, uh, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're saying, God, we know that you know all things. You're in charge of all things. We know, God, that you have planned persecution uh, in, in Christ's death and also the arrest of Peter and John. You knew about this, God. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. At the first threat of uh, of persecution for the gospel, the earliest disciples did not shrink in fear. 
They did not cower and bite their nails and wring their hands, wondering about how they would make it to the next day. Instead, they pray a prayer of great confidence and dependence upon God and His sovereignty, knowing that God has already ordained suffering for their faith. They see suffering as God's gift to them. And they ask God not for relief from their suffering, but for greater boldness to preach the name of Jesus. Church, that's a prayer worth praying every day. Christian, that is a prayer worth praying every day. Irrespective of what happens to me today or in the rest of my life, God, you give me boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Whether I be uh, mocked by friends, arrested by authorities, uh, whether my head is separated from my body because I won't stop preaching about Jesus, God, you give me boldness to keep doing it. That's a prayer that will drive you to radical obedience and mission. It's a prayer that will make you more faithful to be a witness for the gospel in the mundane, everyday routine of life and work. It is the call of every believer to be a witness, to be a verbal proclaimer of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we rely upon the Holy Spirit in us, we will find that nothing in this world will stop the gospel until God's purposes and His plans have been perfectly completed. That is, until there are no, until there are, are, uh, there are no nations that have not heard the name of Jesus, and until there are those who are called Christians by their faith and repentance in every nation of the world. Nothing can stop the gospel. So let's go boldly with the gospel, knowing that in the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing will stop it. It has been said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, because every time Christianity in, in some place or region of the world or some time in history has been persecuted, the church has exploded. Look at communist China. Prior to the communist revolution, the, the, the Christian uh, uh, presence in China was relatively small and, and I wouldn't say ineffective, but they weren't doing a whole lot. Then you have the communist revolution. The communist party takes over. The church now is no longer legally able to meet together. It goes underground. And what happens? It explodes. It explodes. There's, this is a terrible uh, uh, illustration, but, but I think it illustrates the point well. Um, when, when somebody wants to use uh, dynamite to blow something up, uh, uh, or, or uh, yeah, we'll go with that, uh, what you don't do is, if you want to like blow out a, the, a hole in the side of a mountain, you don't take a stick of dynamite and just lay it on the ground next to the mountain. You light it, it blows up, it shoots a lot of dirt and rocks everywhere, but at the end of the day, you've not made a dent in the mountain. If you want to make a hole in the side of the mountain, what do you do with the dynamite? You drill a hole, and you stick it in there, and then you, and then you light that, that fuse, and that stick of dynamite that is now contained... Right? When it explodes, there's, there's pressure by the containment of the rocks around it. And that pressure around the explosion is, is, is such that it compounds the explosive force of that dynamite. It's the same thing if like, you light a firecracker and put it in your hand, um, which I don't recommend. Don't do that. I know the 4th of July is coming up and they're selling things like at every grocery store. Don't put firecrackers in your hand and light them. But if you light a firecracker in your hand, with your hand just open and it pops, you'll, you'll get burned and, and blistered, but you know, you'll still have a hand. But if you close your hand around that firecracker, you won't have a hand anymore when it blows up because uh, pressure, outside pressure upon this thing of great power, thing of explosive power, increases its ability to do what it will do. 
And we see the same thing in the history of the church from its inception until today. In every place where the gospel is, is contained or attempted to be contained, uh, to, 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 be, uh, to, to have pressure put on it, to be oppressed, what happens in response? It explodes and, and, and shifts landscapes, spiritually speaking, all around the world. So when pressure comes upon the church, let us not... Uh, cower uh, and, and be afraid because of the pressure that comes. But let us have greater confidence in knowing that the power of the gospel in us through the Holy Spirit will be all the more powerful when we are persecuted for our faith. Whew. So, discovering Jesus in Acts. Where do we see Jesus in Acts? All over the place is the answer. Flipping to the back of your, your guide, there are just a, a few brief ways. Uh, first, first and foremost, this is where we see Jesus. Jesus is the risen Lord. He's the risen Lord. In, in whose name there is salvation. Because of his death and resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins for all those who trust in him and repent. But Jesus, the risen Lord, does some things in Acts. He's the risen Lord who empowers the disciples. We saw that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He is the one who promises the Holy Spirit, who delivers on that promise, empowering his disciples to be witnesses. But also, he's the risen Lord who's the only way of salvation that, that is not something new. He's the only way of salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Recall Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Peter's sermon again, right? Where Peter there says, speaking of David, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's saying, this Jesus, is, this is not a new thing that he was doing. David, our great king of years long ago, prophesied his resurrection. And in Acts chapter 8, when Philip meets up with that Ethiopian eunuch, that this eunuch from Ethiopia is reading a scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it. And so Philip goes up to the chariot, prompted by the Holy Spirit. He says to the eunuch, what are you reading? Which, by the way, if you just like go to Starbucks sometime and you see somebody reading a Bible, they might be confused. I don't go up to them and just say, "What are you reading?" Because they may say something like the Ethiopian eunuch. It's like this is you know scroll of Isaiah. Who is he talking about? What is this all about? And you may have opportunity to share the gospel. So Philip asks this question of the eunuch: "What are you reading?" And the eunuch tells him. He says, I don't know what this is about. Who is this about Isaiah or is this about somebody else? And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, we read this. Then Philip opened his mouth. Which, by the way, when you witness to the gospel, you've got to open your mouth. You have to speak about Jesus. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So even in the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is being spoken about. He is being prophesied as the one who will be the the, the, the promised Messiah be crucified and raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus is third and finally, the risen Lord who is coming again to judge the world. He's coming again. He didn't die and was raised never to return, but he is going to come back. And he's not going to come back as a servant of all, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, he's coming back as a king on a white horse to judge all those uh, who, have, who are living and who have ever lived. We read in Acts chapter 10, verses 42 and 43. This is Peter preaching again to Cornelius. It says this, He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus does not die on the cross for your sins and be raised from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father to just sit there and be proud of himself. 
He's judge. He is king. He will show what is true, what is righteous. And even uh, Paul, towards the end of his life, has an opportunity to, to preach in front of a, a governor named Felix. And we read this in Acts chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. After some days, Felix, uh, this uh, uh, Roman governor, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, interesting, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, uh, and as he reasoned uh, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment there in his presence. So what is the focus of Paul's sermon there as well, even with Felix? Look, you're a governor and you're in charge of some things here, but there's a judge greater than you who's coming to judge you. And his name's Jesus. He is the Lord. He is Christ. There's salvation in his name because he's risen from the dead. That's who Jesus is. So as you read Acts, look for the risen Lord. Look for the proclamation of his name and of the gospel. Revel in the things that the Holy Spirit is doing in the disciples. Be encouraged to proclaim the gospel with boldness in your life to actually speak the name of Jesus and to call people to repentance. And know all the while with all the confidence that there is uh, that we can have in this life that nothing can stop the gospel. The gospel is good news because Christ died for sinners who didn't deserve it. And tonight we have opportunity as we do each and every month to remember Christ's death for us. The reason that we have...